0: I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond.
2: Ready to go, Doc? Oh yes, yes, my dear fellow, I'll just check the gyroscopes.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This week is episode 87 on Robert E. Howard and L. Sprague de Camp's Conan the Usurper. My name is Jeff, and with me today is that King of Aquilonia, Hoy.
0: Hell fellow, well met.
1: <laughs> and today we also have the co-editor of the Dark Man, Journal of Robert E. Howard and Pulp Studies and an associate professor for English at Christopher Newport University. We have with us Dr. Nicole Emil heynes Carney. Hey, Nicole, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So happy to have you on.
1: (laughs) So, uh, Nicole, we love to ask people kind of their origin story with all of this kind of uh, with all of this geekery. So how did you get into gaming and how did you get interested in Pulp Fiction?
2: Well, uh, to be fair, the Pulp Fiction stuff probably came slightly before the gaming. Mm -hmm. Um, When I was teaching in my master's program, I had to theme a composition course. And I don't even know what possessed me, but I found this collection of the best of weird tales. And I said, "Okay, we're going to use this and we're going to read a different weird tales from every year of the publication of the journal. And we're going to talk about, you know, what makes a weird tale a weird tale. And so it was a way to talk about genre, which is part of what I had to teach. Um, It was not a great class. I'm not going to lie. It probably failed. Uh, But it did get me uh, and my husband, uh, Jason Carney, um, introduced to Weird Tales. And um, it really helped kind of move our careers forward. Um, in particular, Jason, who's published um, some manuscript-length uh, work on this, uh, but it introduced me to a variety of writers, many of who appear on the appendix. N. Um, and then, kind of around the same time, we um, started doing a D and campaign with other graduate students, and I was brand new to it, though my husband. Um, had a lot more experience with that. And I only mentioned him because I know you are going to be talking with him a little later uh, on.
1: Yes, for anybody so. who's listening right now, <laughs> her husband is uh, Jason Ray Carney, who is the other co-editor of The Dark Man. And we will have him on our next episode to cover Fritz Leiber's uh, The Big Time.
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: So which edition of D&D were you working with at that time?
2: Oh, gosh. We were doing 3-5. Um, hmm um, and again, I was brand new to it, had never played it before. And the friend of ours who was DMing was like intensely serious about it. And I just remember the first time that we got together for character creation, she like took everyone aside and was like, okay, I need to know what's your character's backstory? Where are they from? Everything. And I'm like, I don't know. I wasn't prepared. I have a name. <laughs> You're like,
1: I'm an elf? <laughs> I'm yeah. from Elf Elfland. <laughs> I so got you, an elf
0: sword. So you were having a uh, PhD thesis defense night- nightmares again. <laughs> well,
2: this was MA, so we weren't even thinking about like all the, the uh, so terror then it was that was for from PhD
0: thesis defense.
2: Then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it was you know it was fine. We we played through. Uh, I don't think we finished that campaign, uh, but it did get get me introduced to it. Um, And since then, we've played uh, lots of campaigns. Uh, We've done some in second edition. We've done, I think, one or two in four. And currently, I'm playing a campaign with some friends uh, in fifth.
0: Very cool. And had you read a lot of other fantasy fiction? What led you to sort of honing in weird tales for this particular course? And, and did you have any exposure to any of that material before that? Or
2: I, Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously you'd read things like uh, J.R. Tolkien, um, Ursula K. Le Guin, other people like that. And I, yeah, I'm like still trying to scratch my, I'm like, where did I come up with the concept to get this particular book? And I honestly cannot remember uh, I know that I also had taught a class um about body horror and I was teaching um, you know, Reanimator from HP Lovecraft mm. and then the Stuart Gordon version. Uh, you know, kind of his his very campy, you know, adaptation, if you want to call it that. Um, <laughs> And so I'm trying to remember which came first: was it the body horror class or was it the weird tales class? Uh, it's it's hard for me to remember because that was quite a while ago. Um, but I'm thinking maybe I taught the body horror class first and was aware of H.P. Lovecraft and then just started to look. Okay, well, what else Ooh, is his connected? His contemporaries and, and
0: yeah, and, right, right. So okay. it's
2: probably how it led me down to that uh, that particular path to teach the class and then everything that's happened since then.
1: Very cool. And what can you tell us about the Dark Man?
2: So The Dark Man uh, is a journal dedicated to scholarship, um, as well as reviews and scholarly notes that uh, focus on Robert E. Howard or his contemporaries, um, other authors of pulp fiction. Um, Though right now, you know, the bulk of what we publish does tend to focus on Howard um, and Lovecraft. So we would love to see more work coming in uh, that was looking at his contemporaries. Um, I'd really like to see some other work coming in on Clark Ashton Smith, for instance, or see all more, um, you know, or just about Weird Tales, maybe more in general, because we do have the subtitle as, um, you know, it's not just about Howard, but it's also about uh, pulp studies, pulp fiction. Um, But yeah, we just put out our fourth issue it we just got confirmation from the kindle uh publishing that it is now available it took several weeks for some reason all i can think it was just the busy time of the year um you know with christmas and stuff but yeah so that is now out i i mean i really feel good about this issue i feel like it's one of our stronger ones um not that the other ones haven't been strong but this one felt like we finally kind of m- found our groove and mm. how we wanted to publish and what we're looking for. And, and I'm, I'm really happy with how it turned out. We also publish undergraduate work. Um, so we have a couple pieces in this particular issue. One is about weird tales. Um, it's kind of broader aesthetic. And the other um, is about adaptation and H.B. Lovecraft and how maybe he doesn't translate so well into the, the film medium. Mm. And those are two undergraduate essays. Uh, that I was I was quite happy to see come out. Um, but yeah, that's that's it. And we publish twice a year. And uh, typically our June issue comes out uh, in connection with Howard Days. So in next June 10th and 11th will be when Howard Days is running, I believe. And yeah, that's when we're hoping to have the, the next issue out.
1: Perfect. And for those listening who don't know what Howard Days is, it's it's an annual event,
2: right? Yes. Obviously, got postponed. Yes. <laughs> this past summer, um, but yeah, it happens every year in Cross Plains, Texas, uh, which is Howard's hometown. Um, it takes place around the Howard House and some of the local churches. Uh, and it's just a really fun event. It, it's definitely for fans. There is um, some scholarly panels, the Glenn Lord Symposium. Um, there's always a few panels that focus on that. But it's a lot about what's happening in Howard fandom kind of writ large. So we'll hear about, you know, upcoming projects. Um, and every year it's themed differently. And I, I cannot recall for the life of me what next year's theme is going to be. Uh, I know, I think last year it was focused on Solomon Kane if I'm remembering correctly. So it's, it's just really fun. And you get to meet a bunch of really cool people who just love Howard and are just really interested in uh, his importance in, you know, pulp fiction and then popular culture because he is such an important figure uh, that I think often will get overlooked because of the popularity of characters like Conan the Barbarian. Mm-hmm, uh, right. who have a lot more name recognition than his creator, obviously. Right. I
0: mean, what if Conan is maybe what a tenth of his work at best, uh, maybe yeah. even less than you know, <laughs> yeah. a tenth of his body of work.
1: Yeah. Well, today we are here to discuss Conan the Usurper. So, Nicole, which edition of the book are you working with?
2: Um, I have the Ace Fantasy, and I believe this is the one that came out in the 60s. Yep, 60. 60. Well, this was reprinted in 86, okay. but the original came out in 67.
1: Perfect. Can I see the cover?
2: Yeah. It's got that oh, yep.
1: F- yeah. yep. famous yep, yep, Rosetta. Yep, yep. Yeah, <laughs> yep. we've got the 1967 um, Lancer paperback, both of us, and mm-hmm. of course that 80 foot snake is um, right between Conan's legs. Um, not yep. at all. Uh, <laughs> no, not at all. Of, of Subtle. <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> not suggestive of anything whatsoever. <laughs> oh, frizzetta. <laughs> yep.
1: Um Cool. And before we head into the library, I'll take a look at our High Gaxian word of the day, which is. Ambuscade. Ambuscade. And I forgot to write down the page Ambuscade is on, which can be found at the very top of page 156 from this edition that I'm reading. And it says, this, we decided, would be the site for the Ambuscade. ambuscade. So I stretched myself out on my belly with a bow strung and arrow notched on the ground before me. And an Ambuscade is an ambush. It's just another mm-hmm. word for ambush. It's a fancy word for ambush. Now, Nicole, I know you had mentioned you were on um, uh, looking out for kind of um, um, some potential Hygexian words in here. Was there anything that stood out for you?
2: Yeah, I had, I had, well, I had a few. Um, I think my favorite one, and I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, is oolation, mm-hmm. and that is, I, I did not write down the page number either, but I know it's in. Um, it's in the first story, uh, and it means um, a long, wavering, high-pitched vocal sound resembling a howl with a trilling quality.
1: <laughs> Perfect.
2: I think it's in the part where I believe everything is on fire. It, I can't remember who's screaming. It might be the picks. It might be some of the pirates. Uh, but that's how um, that's how their screaming is described.
1: Amazing. And Dan Alexander from our patron book club sent me an email last week with some uh, words that he thought would be good candidates. And he included mantlet, uh, which is also something I didn't know. I guess it's, I guess I had to look it up. It's a, apparently a giant like wall on wheels that you push to like uh, so that arrows, we will get hit by arrows. He also put down molt, M U L C T, taking something by deception. And he put in Spay Woman, which he said seems to be a semi invented version of Spay Wife. There you go. So we've got lots of good candidates
0: in this book. Right. Um, I have a candidate from the very last page, which is just a moraine on these wizardly feuds. A moraine is an infectious disease, amazing. typically affecting cattle and other animals. <laughs> so.
1: <laughs> nice. So we can head on into the library now. Now, Nicole, I know that you have read. Robert E. Howard stuff at length, but you had not previously read any of the Elspeth to Camp adaptations. That's correct, right?
2: Absolutely. So, um, when I first became a part of the Howard community, everything I heard was, you know, don't read these editions. Yeah. So I never did, <laughs> and yeah, after after reading after reading this one, I know why.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about it. <laughs>
2: I mean, so just based on the little bit of kind of research into this that I did, because I'll I'll be very honest, um, I am not as well-versed about everything that DeCamp did with the Mm -hmm. Howard editions. Um, Like I said, when I I kind of learned about it and I just felt the anger that people had around it, I just said, well, I'm just going to avoid them then. Sure. Uh, There's other perfectly good authorized Howard editions Editions uh, out there, and I'm just going to spend my time with those. So, um, with this one, the treasure of uh, how do you how do you how are you guys pronouncing I'm this? I'm saying
0: Tranicos. Yeah, I've been saying Tranicos. Yeah. Okay,
2: yeah. So, like with the treasure of Tranicos, which I believe was, and it was based on was it called the Black Stranger? Was this yeah. the one that it yep. was yep. coming mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. of? Right. Yeah. yeah. So when I'm reading this one, and I'm just like, man, this is just a slog to get yeah. through, isn't it? It mm-hmm. was just.
1: And there's like 40 pages where you don't even have Conan.
2: Yeah. I'm like, where is Conan? Like, this is so strange. Um, But the plot felt very, uh, gosh, I guess disheveled would be a kind way to describe it. It it meandered and then like new things came in and then they were kind of dropped for a while. and Then they were picked back up. And I did find on, I believe this was on the Conan Wikipedia page, way too many tabs pulled up i kept it open in case i wanted to reference it yeah so this is coming from the the conan fandom wiki um and according to this it says that decamp made changes to better fit the story within his imagined chronology and that's you know a whole issue Mm -hmm. that we may or may not want to talk about um so it says that decamps major change uh was to make uh, this story lead into uh, the revolution that would bring uh Conan into the throne of Aquilonia. Um so like that whole bit on the end where these counts come in looking for Conan to, to lead this revolt. Like I guess it wasn't in the original. Oh, it's just kind of like a hot mess at times. And and I know that I was reading some other criticism of DeCamp's uh editing and um you know what a lot of people feel is that if you were coming to uh, Conan brand new, having, you know, never read anything else, and this is where you start, which I think is where a lot of people started, Absolutely. Uh, you know,
0: yeah.
2: right? In the 60s and 70s and, and into the 80s, even if this is who you're reading first, you're going to get a very different impression of who Conan is and what Howard was intending to do with the character. Um because of the way that DeCamp was very heavy-handedly editing and working with some of these texts,
1: mm-hmm. and what's also interesting is the very first collection in the series that's just titled Conan. Um, the very first two stories aren't even by Robert E. Howard. They're by one is, I believe, just by Ellsberg de DeCamp, and another one I believe is an Ellsberg DeCamp Lynn Carter collaboration. So and and if you you know read carefully in like the, the 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 cover pages, you can see that that's the case. But otherwise, they're just presented in the text as though they're all just like Robert E. Howard stories. So you had really without looking really carefully, you had no way of knowing that like you're not even seeing Howard's Conan until the third story in that collection.
0: Right, right now, we know that DeCamp is sort of anathema within um, many circles of sort of Howard's studies. Uh, for his Conan work, is there any? consensus or even thought about his non Conan work in in that um you know he had also an enormous body of work that is he because he's anathema is all his other stuff stricken from the record too as well in in a sense or is it something that people are still saying, hey, we should still take a look at this because you know, he did a lot to popularise Sword and Sorcery as well.
2: Yeah. So um again I'm probably not the best person to talk about. I I, I've read Lynn Carter's some of his work. I have not read just uh DeCamp's work on his own. Um so again not the person that could could speak very definitively about this but i get the sense that you know he he does have a black mark on his reputation uh but i don't think his other things might carry that mark as mm-hmm. least uh to the point where people will say well i'm not going to read his work because he did have such a wide uh you know amount of work that he produced over his lifetime um mm-hmm. but Again, I'm probably not the best person to speak to about that.
0: One of our... Um, so we have before the show, we have a book club with some of our Patreons and they discuss stories. And one of our guests was also mentioning that even the Howard version of this story is, cons- is very um, polarizing. That a lot of Howard fans will say it's either one of his best stories or it's one of his mm-hmm. worst stories. Uh, so even in the original Howard text. And I was... There's definitely a lot of heavy-handed decampisms in there, but I was still... Sort of surprised, like where I was able to pick them out, and realize that he didn't re- rewrite so much, so much as rewrite Howard stuff as insert stuff, and so yeah. that, that was different than some of his other jobs where he's really just completely rewritten Howard. Um, so that was um, that was interesting. And that there. was
2: that was my understanding too. Like mm. the uh, the the Sorcerer, what Amon, yeah. right? He mm-hmm. just kind of inserted him yeah. into the character. He changed what the mist in the cave. Right. Was into this like kind of black man figure right. that the sorcerer then could control. Um, but again, that that's my understanding of of some of the bigger changes that DeCamp made to this particular story uh, right. with the idea of it's going to fit in with my timeline that I'm trying yeah. to create right, here.
0: Right. The timeline was a big problem. And then also just from a purely narrative point of view. And again, Jeff, you had normally do side-by-sides, but you said the story was one you had not been able to do a side-by-side with the DeCamp and the Howard version, right? I
1: I did not do a side-by-side with this one, but I did with the other three books in the collection. I listened to the audiobook recordings from the Sword of Sumerian while I read along with the text so that I could see what the differences were. Right, Right. And what's interesting is in the second story, Wolves Beyond the Border, this was an unfinished draft of Howard's that... Ellsberg de Kemp didn't really make too many changes to until right right before it ends, and then he just finished it. But what's interesting, though, is he did most of the changes he made where, for example, on um, the second page of the story, Robert E. Howard wrote, it was a warning and a threat, a promise of doom for those white-skinned invaders. And Ellsberg de Kemp just changed it to those invaders. He crossed out white-skinned. Mm. And then later in the story... It's, um, Howard wrote a deathly faintness and weakness took hold of me for what white man could watch such black diabolism unmoved and Elsbury de Kemp changed white man to civilized man. And then like later in the story too, um, the tall, light skinned warrior wheeled for the first time I saw his face. And by Mitra, he was a white man. And Osprey de Camp changed a white man to a Hyborian. So, what's interesting is he seems to be going through it and making it a bit more racially sensitive, which is something that's kind of interesting that I would not have expected.
2: Well, he did that, okay, apparently with the wolves beyond the border. But I know there were some passages in the Treasure of, of Trent. How did you say that again? Tranicos. <laughs> yeah. Tranicos. Thank you. Um, that I was like, ooh, wow. Oh, yeah. There's like, still a lot of bad stuff in there. <laughs> oh, Jeez. Right, right. right. No and he kidding, left, right?
0: Right. And he didn't change the depiction of um, whoever that night is gloating over uh, Conan in the Scarlet Citadel. You know, it's just still described as, you know, you know, woolly haired mm-hmm. and thick lipped or something like that. So he didn't change. Yeah. They talked
1: about like agony coming from his blubbery lips and right. like, yeah.
0: Right. right. So I think he was very inconsistent. In terms of his making those changes, but it is understandable that he did make those changes. Well, it seems like all he did was he removed instances of referring
1: to white people as white people, but he did not fix any of the descriptions of black people or 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 the pics to make right. them less uh, inflammatory.
0: Right, right. Um, so, I mean, he did the bare sort of like the very bare minimum that you would have to do in 1967, I guess. Right, <laughs> right. Which is you know sort Perhaps. of these this the, you know the heart of the civil rights era um although you know again i don't from what most you know what i've read of de camp which is not a lot he did not generally think in sort of racial racialist terms i don't i think he was probably fairly blasé about it and so certainly there would be sort of uh you know privilege involved but not the sort of um essentialist views that you know are are often attributed to howard or to h.p lovecraft that um you know
1: yeah, we haven't really seen a ton of that in in Elspeth de Camp's own writing, right. but like certainly in this, we see there's there's um, in the Treasure of Trandacost. There's all those moments where Conan is now making a rogue's alliance with all these other people he doesn't like because he doesn't want to see white men of his own complexion being killed by the Picts. But then it's also interesting because also then in the um, Wolves Beyond the Border, he talks about how the Picts are technically white people. Um, but they have darker skin and dark hair and dark eyes so regardless there seems to just be like this really like um, laser focused attention to skin color having serious merit and 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 somehow defining who you can and should align yourself with
0: right um, i think all that's in the howard text but i said that interesting and i'm not sure how conscious he is i think howard is at least sort of aware of race as being constructed in a way that lovecraft is not right lovecraft is totally like this is it and that's that right whereas howard Elson has these stories like right there he's talking about race race as a construct right the pics are white but they're not white right and then howard has these other stories where you know a black man is clearly the protagonist and maybe it's still very um you know, essentially racist, because, you know, the person is depicted as sort of, you know, in a state of nature, you know, this hero, it's just, just, they're essential, it's not that they are, you know, given sort of agency, but um, they still are distinct characters, uh, rather than sort of these, you know, and they can be heroes, or they can be villains. Um, And this is more like in his sort of modern day stories than his sort of, um, you know, sort of sorcery stories. Um, but I think that Howard is at least twigging to the idea that race is a construct. Um, I'm not even sure I, to what extent people talked about that in those terms in the 30s. I, I'm not, you know, that's not my area, obviously. Maybe you have more to say about that, Nicole.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know if people were thinking in that way, or at least maybe Howard and in, in the circles that he was running in, I believe that they were using the, the idea of racial construction. But I did have a thought just now where I was thinking about like what the camp was removing what then? What he chose to let leave in, and then I'm um, reading these stories in particular. It does feel like Conan's ascension right to the throne is almost like a, a race war. Then you know, mm. right? And and like again, if you're picking this up outside of anything else that Howard might be doing, and, and you're seeing more of a emphasis on uh, difference from whiteness, that would lead you to maybe view the figure of Conan quite differently. Uh, I don't know, just an idea. Like, I would have to go back then and, and read the original text, kind of do like this side by side to really think okay, is that actually in the original too? Or is this something that we can maybe read more because of uh, the emphasis that gets put on uh, skin color and difference uh, just by default of the removal of, of things like, like, you know, changing white to Hyborian? Was that the? The change right. that you mentioned, right? Yeah,
1: that was what, what, yeah. what happened quite a bit. Now, Nicole, yeah. I'm curious, you know, as a Howard scholar and a Pulp, Pulp scholar in 2020, do you feel like um, you can responsibly discuss these works without bringing up the problematic elements with of, of racism and misogyny that we can see in the text?
2: I think you have to address that. Um, I think that when I first started reading and working and talking in these circles. maybe wasn't addressed as directly, uh, though people still acknowledged it, especially when you were dealing with Lovecraft. I remember um, going to the Necronomicon and hearing S.T. Joshi talk about how it's not really excusable for Lovecraft uh, because the people that he aspired to be like, they had already kind of started to move away from those kinds of of ideas and and maybe more prominent um, public uh, moves and then Lovecraft himself did, uh, or it took him a lot longer to start to move that way. Um, so I know that people were still acknowledging it, uh, especially with Lovecraft. But yeah, when you're talking about Howard and you're talking about a lot of the other pulp writers uh, from the 1930s and 40s, now you have to like you you really can't read this work without also acknowledging. Okay, so as a contemporary reader, uh, what is troublesome about you know how we're writing characters and how the characters are being described and what elements of their personalities or their being, uh, is being highlighted in the text. And how does that, uh, create maybe like some problems? Um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not of the camp that says, well, we should stop reading because, you know they're problematic. Well, I, I would I would challenge anyone to find any author who, in some way, isn't problematic, especially through the lens of time. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people that I'm sure we can point to who were uh, writing. You know, even just a few years ago, and maybe maybe in another ten years ago, we might look at what they uh, maybe how they were um, writing trans characters, for instance, huh, and then go trans well,
0: and just the certain you know this. Just yeah. what we know from through Me Too now, just like literally at the turn of the de- decade, at the turn of the century, we're like, oh, wow, you know, this is stuff that was still going on. It's still going on now, but that mm-hmm. we just didn't, we're just like, oh, that's, that's just that guy being that guy. Right. And what is your student's reaction? I mean, we're talking about a much younger generation when they're reading this and when they're being exposed to this, this kind of material
2: haven't gotten to teach it too much, but I know that, again, when my husband, uh, Jason Carney, when he teaches these works, he does have a disclaimer, kind of a warning in his syllabi, like, hey, we're going to read texts that are going to have problematic elements in them, um, but we should still read them and we can talk productively about you know, what's going on with these particular elements, uh, why they're problematic, why they don't necessarily translate well to contemporary readers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we can also talk about how they're important authors and the works are very important in understanding the longer trajectory of these different genres developments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how, for instance, are things that Conan, I'm sorry, are things that Howard is doing with his Conan stories that would then set the stage for authors to come later with, um, you know, sword and sorcery or other related genres. You know, what is he setting in place that will get picked up and reused in productive ways, uh, you know, over the next few decades as, as, especially as different authors, you know, women authors, authors of color start to come in and work in these genres too. So what is important about Authors like Howard um, is what they allow other authors later on to do, uh, and, and we should acknowledge that. But we should also equally acknowledge the fact that there are definitely things uh, with these texts that are, you know, problematic, and um, we need to talk about them. But I don't think, on the same token, that they they take away from from the overall importance of the authors or their
0: works. Right, and that would be something that, as you said. Almost any author would then, at certain point, become, uh, many of their elements of their work would not become acceptable by current standards, right? I and mean, who knows what we're we writing today that will be looked upon with uh, exactly. scans in 10 years. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah
1: now nicole how much um how much space do people make for these kinds of conversations in places like Howard days is there um, Is it kind of considered like you guys can openly talk about these things or is or is there kind of a portion of the attendees who like really don't want to be thinking about or talking about or looking at that kind of stuff? Do you get much much pushback
2: um i again, I think when you have a large group of people that come from a variety of backgrounds, you're going to get people who just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to acknowledge it. They just know we're just, we're just here for Howard. We're just here for his creations. We need to just focus on that. Let's not bring anything else into the text. Uh, but there's also a big part of this fandom that wants to talk about these things and that they do talk about them. Um, so a few years ago at Howard Days, I actually gave a paper that argued that sword sorcery was a feminist genre uh, because of the flexibility of gender performativity that can be seen in the works. And I was nervous about giving that talk. I was like, oh God, you know, not a lot of women go to these <laughs> kinds of events. Um, but I, I gave it in it. It ultimately was... Pretty well received, I think. Um, I think maybe there's there's one comment on the video, a little Starky about Howard and women. Um, but overall, um, people seem pretty interested in in the idea. They wanted to talk about it. Um, I certainly didn't get any kind of confrontation <laughs> confrontational argument, you know, arguments from anybody after the talk. Um, so yeah, there's space for it, I think. I think more and more people are open to hearing these kinds of constructive criticisms of Howard, which is only for the better. Again, we can acknowledge like how important Howard is. We can also acknowledge that he did some things that just don't sit well with us today.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I think, uh, you know, as a Howard scholar, I think you've noticed and you've pointed out sort of um, you specifically have a, a piece on the blog about his letters and how much there is to be gleaned from there. Um, but that he was very much a work in progress, right? And unfortunately, because his life was cut short, I mean, I was the one thing I always like to harp on is that I don't know that he would have changed. He might have just been, but you know, he was quite a young man when he died. And if he had lived a normal lifespan, he would have lived into. The civil rights era the beginning of the sort of a women's you know uh women's equal rights and stuff like that you know the modern feminist era and stuff like that and it would be interesting to see how that might have would he have just been like oh nope 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 or would he been like sort of like adopted some of that material for his work you know
2: yeah i mean those are the kind of thoughts ex- experiments that you know we also kind of talk about uh, at gatherings like Howard days and you know when i'm doing things like necronomicon we'll definitely talk about that like you know did and i would say with lovecraft too i think there there you can see a little bit more change you know he was, he was about like what 10 or so years older than howard right. um so you can see that over time his views did change um uh, probably not as dramatically as we would would want to say that they changed but they did change and and i would assume that had howard lived even even if he just would have lived just a few years after that like just to see World War Two, right? Right,
0: because so much social change happened right through the result of that, right? Women going into the workforce, um, sort of the beginnings of uh, you know integration. Certainly, at least through the military and stuff like that, that would have been a big change. Um,
2: yeah, I, and I, I mean, so uh, you know, I I'll be be like you know optimistic and assume that howard would have changed because that was the thing is it, their worlds are, were fundamentally kind of small even though howard traveled lovecraft traveled uh around the country but i i think that the the more exposure that he would have had to different viewpoints different people uh through letters through reading is you know he's a, obviously a pretty voracious reader uh i, I yeah i I, I think it would. I think he would have changed. I don't know to what extent. It would have been really fascinating. I would have mm-hmm. loved to have seen the work he wrote as an older man. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody with more experience.
1: Who knows? And it's also interesting that this collection includes the um, two of the first stories that Robert E. Howard ever wrote about Conan, and they are as Conan the King. Although the bulk of what Robert E. Howard wrote was not going to be about Conan the King. It's going to be about Conan as a younger man um, prior to him becoming king. And I'm curious, Nicole, do you feel like when you look at the um, the overall bulk of the Conan stories, do you feel like the character arc of the young Conan climbing the Tower of the Elephant to older Conan claiming the throne in Aquilonia, do you feel like that character arc works?
2: Yeah, I I think it does. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say it didn't work, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. uh, because I do believe that um Howard was imagining this kind of multifaceted character at different points in the character's life, and that eventually there there is a kind of logical sense to where the character goes and and you mm-hmm. know how he gets there. And I think that that's probably what de Camp really wanted to highlight when he was putting these additions together. He wanted to more clearly draw those lines out for the reader to show why there was a logical consistency to the arc of the character Um, you know again people might argue that those kinds of edits uh ultimately diminish what howard was wanting to achieve with the writing itself uh but i can see why he would have wanted to make that move um I know there's there's that uh, that kind of oh gosh I don't think it did come from a letter. So Howard claimed that he was kind of getting these moments, like like it was almost like the character of Conan was coming to him, right? (laughs) Like, and just kind of appearing and telling him these stories. Kind of here's one, here's one, and so Mm -hmm. then the idea is that you know Conan is sitting down at a bar and kind of just doing the, the bar talk and telling these stories. And and I like that idea of the character coming about through that way, because if you think about it, that's how most of us, I think, develop an identity, is. If we were all to sit down at a bar and introduce ourselves, you know, what would we want to highlight for right. other people? I would tell you I
0: was king first, right? And yeah, then later on exactly. I
2: tell you. <laughs> right. Let me tell you how yeah. I became king.
1: And as you get to know somebody, like, let's say, like, you're, you're 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 falling in love with somebody and, you know, you're having all these great dates and the things that you're learning about them, you're not learning about their life in order like at that first night you hang out you guys aren't just t- discussing you know pre-kindergarten memories <laughs> <laughs> after each c- consecutive date getting slightly later but i can i can understand the um the desire to want to turn these into something where you can see like the whole memoir of Conan but like That's just, it's not what Robert E. Howard was doing.
2: And again, I I think that that's why there was so much pushback against the camp. It wasn't just the editing. It was the kind of move to really solidly put these stories in a chronology where right. they weren't they weren't written that way they were not published that way yeah. and and now it's like the Howard purists say okay if you're going to really want to understand how Howard was writing this character you should read them in the orders that they appeared you know in the publications exactly. uh, you know with Howard's texts being right. the ones to read
0: right and this, they just don't have room to breathe with all the stuff the interpolations that El, you know can't put in there
1: and amazingly, th- thanks to the, those Del Rey collections, we can now do that. We can read the proper editions of these stories in the in in the proper order. It's unfortunately it's unfortunate that there's not something similar for like Fritz Leiber's Grey Mouser because like that really has seemed to kind of solidified into this like internal chronology by that Ace put out. But like. I've not read the Favreau and Green Master stories in publication order, but I hear it is a much more rewarding experience to do it right. that way than it is to read them in the internal. Right. chronology. I,
0: I actually semi did that with the list that uh, Michael Curtis put together for the you know the DCC oh, nice. list. Um, now, uh, Nicole, you made an interesting point because uh, about uh, Conan sort of uh, emerging full blown, you know, in this dream, but it's also sort of myth making, right, on Robert E. Howard's mm-hmm. part because people tend to think of him as sort of almost like as this sort of. Um, Idiot savant would be too strong a word, but sort of there's a natural talent, right? But whereas we now know that he is an incredible craftsman and he would go through drafts and drafts and drafts, Mm -hmm. but he just said he was just so prolific and such a fast writer that it would appear that this thing's sort of, you know, um, but he was very conscious of all the choices that he was making. Um, So I'm kind of interested in that sort of, um, why do we want Howard to be this sort of um, instinctual primitive writer we want him to be like conan i guess as opposed to
2: <laughs> well and, and that's probably it right like we we love this character and we just have we i think it's it's natural we imprint elements of the character onto the author right mm-hmm. or vice versa you know right. yeah. as I, as i'm reading something um i'm always like oh i bet the author wrote themselves into this character. i just yeah, you know, we can't yeah. help but do that um but i yeah i and i i i do think that that's an important uh thing to remember about Howard is that he, you know, he was so well versed in how to write for these many different pulp markets that he wrote for. Like he understood them really well, whether it was, you know, his Westerns or his horror or Conan or other kinds of weird fiction that he might've been writing or the boxing stories or the sailing story. I mean, my God, like, can you imagine being able to juggle that kind of knowledge? And and that's, that's what's so cool for me. So my background, again, I'm not a literary scholar. I am more of a writing scholar, um, you know, aligned with kind of rhetorical choices that authors make when they sit down to write. Like I'm, I'm fascinated with how do writers write.
1: Mm, Interesting.
2: And, Like, that's the thing I find really cool about Howard and Lovecraft and all the other pulp writers of this time is that they were doing something that was so sophisticated. They were doing audience analysis and they were understanding not just, again, what these audiences wanted, but what the editors of these different publications wanted. And they needed to do that in order to secure their publications. Right. And, you know, Howard wanted to make his living as a writer. Uh and he did eventually get some success doing that, you know, toward the end of his life. And he did that because he trained himself into understanding these markets mm. and uh learning how to put together a story that would get accepted. And and yeah, I think that needs to be uh credited with him a lot more than maybe it has.
0: Totally. And without any of the modern tools of sort of, uh, you know, data crunching, data analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah, right, right. That
2: was the cool thing about the letter writing that he did. You know, he was such a prolific letter writer to so many different people. Uh, and they would talk about... Uh, Sometimes specifically about story writing, but oftentimes just about other things that would come into the stories. And you know, the the, the famous one, right, is between him and Lovecraft in the barbarism versus civilization debate that just happened for so long, uh, took up just just pages and pages and pages of letters. But that became so important for him to under, uh, understanding and how to kind of craft uh, this particular character. Uh, mm-hmm. And not just not just Conan, but then the larger worldscape that Conan uh, enacts, you know, his life within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. and I, I think that that the letters became important for Howard to do that.
1: So it's probably a good time for us to move over to the gaming portion of this conversation and um I so one of the things that I was able to pull up uh, thanks to our buddy Dan Alexander from the book club is we've got a couple of different iterations of Conan actually like written up um, in in gaming terms. And one of them is in Dragon Magazine issue 36. There's an article by Gary Gygax uh, just called Conan with an exclamation point. And he presents us with Conan stats at various ages throughout his career. Now, Nicole, I'm curious. Um, Conan as a young man has a different alignment in this According to Gary Gygax, then Conan as an old man. Okay. What a, what what alignment do you think young Conan has, and what alignment do you think old Conan has?
2: Oh geez, this is this is Turkey. Um
1: and obviously there's only one right answer because this is right. Gary Gygax. This, he this made is this family. canon. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's
1: no room for interpretation.
2: Um I I want to say maybe chaotic neutral as a young man. Quite
0: Correct. Not. Correct. <laughs> he
1: hasn't been as chaotic neutral as a young man, and nice. as he became an old an old man, which what, what did he move toward?
2: Was he lawful neutral?
1: He says chaotic good. He says he went from chaotic oh, okay. neutral to okay. chaotic good. Okay. Um, but what's also interesting though. Is I mean not only like obviously he's got like an 18 strength and at the age of 30 he has a 19 strength. But another thing that's weird here that I've never seen before is his levels go up and then his levels go down, which I've not really seen before. But at the age of um, what is this? At the age of 40, Conan is a 24th level fighter and a 14th <laughs> level thief. Um <laughs> I misspoke. I'm sorry. 24th level fighter, and 12th level thief. Um, but then, by the age of 70, he's a 12th level fighter and 8th level thief. So I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> it's I pretty mean, ridiculous. But. I think
0: that's him and modeling. Uh, yeah. Right. And there's there's all the things he says, like that he's very pronouncement uh, pronouncements from the balcony, right in the <laughs> in the in the Dungeon Master's Guide that he then goes on to break in these articles in Dragon Magazine yeah. and, and other sources. And <laughs> I wonder if. Gary and Al Sprague-de-Camp were, you know, actually secret correspondents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they seem to have quite a bit of, of quite a bit in common with each other. But now, so Nicole, you said that you kind of got into the pulp prior to the gaming. So once you started playing d and d, how much pulp influence were you seeing and how much Howardian influence were you seeing in the game?
2: Well, I mean, there's pretty clear, uh, Howwardian Howardian influence, right. With the, the kind of barbarian class character mm-hmm. build, you know, and just like the super strong guy. Um, but I, I think that, that sometimes people then would, would not allow the intelligence to, to be in that kind of character build that I think, I think Conan's an incredibly intelligent character too. Right. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: And Howard specifically says that it's not even something you have to like interpret it's it's there in the text it just talks about how smart he is right. yeah
2: yeah so um i think that that you know the kind of dumb barbarian has become kind of a cliche now with, with yeah. some gaming circles uh that is not in the original source material right or
0: you think um, that's, that's a Schwarzen- schwarzenegger. schwarzenegger. yeah right yeah.
2: and he's not he's not a stupid guy either right, right? he's yeah. pretty intelligent Someone actually said that schwarzenegger
0: was like the amongst all the other things that he was the best at mind games during the whole sort of um during his bodybuilding career he would win a lot of times not just on his technique, but just messing with people's minds before they went up for the final exhibition.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> right, right.
0: Um, so that was, that was his thing. So yeah, I think just there's totally a little believe funny, that. funny parallel there. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> so.
2: I, I think, I think some of the, the kind of, uh, bigger world world building that you might see in, in like a D and D campaign. I think you can definitely trace that back to, to Howard's, uh, as long as, uh, along with some other, uh, pulp writers, um, does C.L. Moore, Seal Moore doesn't appear in the original appendix, and does she appear in any of the updated versions that, like, 5 years? Um, she, no. she
0: does. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. She appears in both the um, the Frank Menser basic box sets uh, list of inspirational authors, and um, she's in the 5th edition list I of mean, yeah, authors. The, uh,
0: the, Mulvey, uh, the Mulvey, not the Menser, but the, the list. Cause the oh,
1: d- did I have, oh, okay, did I have that backwards? Yeah. It's the Mulvey? It's and the 50, yeah,
0: yeah. Because uh, the Mulvey had, a, I'm trying to remember name. She, the name, um, they brought in a librarian. She was a YA librarian and quite knowledgeable, and she brought in a lot of other sources of of, of material in there as well. But yeah, C.L. Moore is in there. Um, Lee Brackett, and, uh, uh, Brackett Andre Norton, and um, Margaret Sinclair, I think, are the only women that's explicitly called out in the original appendix end. Is that right, Jeff? That yeah, is. Right.
2: Yeah, I, I was looking over the original and, and I did notice that there weren't a whole lot of women on there. I, and I didn't think all more was, was in that one. I'm glad to hear that she's in the updated version, uh, which is just cool that the fifth edition, um, you know, of D&D did decide to update that. Because um, I know there were definitely authors on there. Like, uh, I think Ursula K. Le Guin shows up in the more updated one. And I think that... that that's, right.
0: a, that's a good... And I think in the fifth edition, there. they do specifically call out some sort of the more new wave, some of the new wave, uh you know, I don't know if uh, N.K. Jamison's on the list, but people like N.K. Jamison and people yeah, of that is. generation. You're, you're right. Yeah,
2: her inheritance trilogy is on there. Right. Uh, yeah, getting back to kind of the classic appendix N and, and like what Howard and other pulp authors... Um, I definitely can see, uh, like I said, connections to the bigger kind of world building. And uh, I'm thinking of, of stuff that's not Conan too, right? Um, like Worms of the Earth, which mm-hmm. is probably one of my favorite Howard stories ever. Um, I can see that there could be a lot of influence, you know, on on like, DD uh campaign setting you know and something like that uh but and then oh, some of the 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 monsters or the creatures that you might see in a D campaign uh like in the scarlet citadel when conan's been captured right and he's seeing all these kind of like horrors uh mm-hmm. in, in the sorcerer's uh dungeon i think that that you can definitely trace not just what howard was doing but a lot of other pulp authors as they were kind of creating these uh, creatures for their protagonists to come up against. I think that, that definitely has found its way uh, into more modern D settings and, right, and things like right, that. Scarlet Citadel
0: is explicitly the idea of like the early DD dungeon, right? I mean, that the fact that it's so important that the, he has the torch and he, you know, the torch, he drops the torch and it almost burns out and he has to find it right. we kind of hand waved this in sort of more, you know, short form games or modern games. I don't want to just say it's modern games, but just if you're running like a four hour session, we tend to just not think about it. Whereas, you know, if you really want to, you know, you know, uh, put some fear in your players, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, your torches has got to ring out, <laughs> you know, you retreat, you continue onwards, you know.
2: And and I also was thinking uh, when I was reading Wolves Beyond the Border and um, I, I can't remember the characters' names, but when they were getting tied up, when they got captured by the picks and, and the one character like made sure to keep his muscles very taut while he was being tied up. So then when when he could relax them, which was apparently hours later, <laughs> <but> whatever. <laughs> when he could finally relax them, he could wiggle his way out. And I thought, okay, yeah, like I, 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 You guys probably do this all the time, but now as I was reading these stories and in preparation for, for coming on, on the episode today, I was like, well, if I get stuck in something like this, if I can remember to keep my character's muscles taut while she's yeah. getting tied right. up, right. I can probably <laughs> worm my way out of it later on.
0: Right, right. That's great. Right. And that's that negotiation you have with the DM and sort of old school D&D, whereas now <laughs> yeah. you just say, oh, that's a roll. Yeah. Yes. Okay. You know. Yes. You can have a roll against yeah. decks against minus fifteen or something like that. Right. Um, My thing that I
1: would that I I took that I that I want to steal from this is it, it was also from the Scarlet Citadel, but it's you know when he's when he's um, underground and he um, suddenly this man bursts forth and he's like. Conan, you have done me a great wrong, and Conan has no idea who this dude is. Yeah. Like, but apparently he's like done him some great wrong from something he did in the past, and the guy like like shows up and like delivers this great speech, um, and then is just eaten by a sna- by yeah. a giant snake. <laughs> I feel like that would be something really fun to just like throw into a campaign, like especially if it's the kind of campaign where your players have been going around and like causing havoc all over the place. Like who knows, like who is out to get them at this point because of that.
0: Right. <laughs> you know, just made me give a very silly image in my mind, but that's almost like the pre-credit sequence in a bond movie. And then you would just see like, you would just see like Sean Connery tur- as Bond, turn around, as Conan turn around. And just, Do you see the snake? Mish Money, Penny? <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Well, that seems like that's probably a good place for us to start wrapping stuff up. Um, Nicole, is there kind of a last thought about Conan the Usurper that you would like to um, share with us, either from a gaming or a literary perspective before we wrap this up?
2: Um, yeah, I skipped the, the first two and, and just read the last two. <laughs> <laughs> you, really, I like it. you really don't need to read the other two stories in this collection. You're fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, and really the only reason we're doing it this way is um, when I kind of devised the reading list for this podcast, I really wanted to do it from the perspective of what somebody in 1979 would have been reading. So I specifically wanted to do paperbacks of that era, which unfortunately for Robert E. Howard, he's the author who was probably the most short shrifted by um, us deciding to do it this way.
0: Yeah, but I think it's it's been interesting anyway because I think... Um... Most people who've been following the project are still looking for the the original Howard texts, yeah. and so so I think they're not missing out. And it's interesting just to hear about the sort of um, the evolution and and again some things we talked about. Sometimes the story is inferior, but it is easier to extract for gaming purposes. Right,
1: and it's also interesting to see like when you look at those original gaming
0: booklets and you
1: you know you, you see that the. The Howard Conan and the uh, Elsberg to Camp Conan—they were pulling just as much stuff from all of those stories. So it really was um, part of the um, the like the ethos and the, the 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 brain space that these things were designed in was really you know kind of from the from specifically the, these versions of those stories. Unfortunately, right. um, so Nicole, is there anything that you're working on right now that you would like our our listeners to know about?
2: Um, so, yeah, the fourth issue of The Dark Man has just came out on the Kindle Direct Publishing. Uh, so, if you get on Amazon and you just search for The Dark Man, you should be able to find it. It's $8. Um, like I said, at the start of the show, um, I think this fourth issue is really great. We have, uh, we actually have a, a piece of scholarship in there that's analyzing, um, some of the illustrations and some of the various editions of the the Conan books. Um, my husband, Jason Ray Carney has an article in there that's, uh, talking about, you know, how the moves that like Howard and, and Lovecraft, uh, were doing compared to different types of moods from other modernist writers, um, so I think that that's a really interesting uh, idea to kind of put them into conversation, you know, put these writers into conversations with, with the so-called high modernists of the time. Um, I talked a little bit about the uh, two undergraduate essays we have in there that are excellent. We have a couple reviews in there of some recent publications that have come out in the Howard world. Uh, so yeah, so pick that up. Um, we are currently accepting submissions of either book reviews or um you know, could be film, it could be, uh, album reviews. We're, we're pretty open with what we we review. We just prefer it to have some type of connection to either pulp or Howard in some way. Um, or we're looking for, um, scholarly articles of no more than 6,000 words. So if there's anybody of an academic, uh, persuasion listening and you have something you're sitting on, you know, that could work, uh, we'd love to see it.
0: And that's all at the darkmanjournal.org, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, the darkmanjournal.org. Uh We also just launched over the summer a um, companion blog called The Pavilion Blog, which we are publishing um, more short pieces of you know, just, you know, three to 500 words, again, about Howard or related pulp fiction. Uh, we have several posted uh, that you can access from uh, the darkman.org, uh backslash the pavilion blog if you want to see some examples of that. Um, so yeah, we're accepting those. Um, I, I really think that's probably just about everything I'd, I'd have to plug related to Howard right now.
1: Awesome. And if people want to know more about the Dark Man or want to be, are, do you have a social media presence or is it more just... Directing people to the website.
2: <laughs> um, I mean, I, I honestly don't use my social media uh, a lot. So I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't probably ask people to uh, go looking for me on Twitter or something. Uh, instead, I would say go to thedarkman.org, mm-hmm. um, which is our journal's uh, website. Uh, We have lots of information on there um, about the journal itself. Um, The call for papers is on there. The pavilion blog. Um, If you are wanting to reach out to uh, either myself or my husband, who's the co-editor, that'd be the place to do it.
1: Perfect.
0: And Hoy, how can folks get a hold of us? Right. If you want to drop us a note, you can write us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at at appendix underscore n. Uh, If you like what we're doing, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It does help people find us. And Jeff, how about our Patreon?
1: Yes. So uh, today we were joined by three of our patrons for the Patron Book Club prior to this recording. We had Jeremy Harper, Adam Stiers, and Dan Alexander. And that was a really fun conversation that we had with those three guys. If you are a member of our Patreon, you are able to join us in these pre-show discussions. And also we record those discussions and post them on our Patreon. So if you're a patron, you can also listen to those patron, those patron book clubs and participate. So it's kind of a cool little bonus to being a member of our Patreon. And I would also like to send a special thank you to Andy Action, Angelo Chiriaco, David J. Hotstream, Eric Hoffman, Jeremy Harper, Robbie Fioto, Vixter, and William Souter. Thank you so much for your support. Indeed, indeed yes thanks speaking of thank yous nicole thank you for being on the show today
2: oh thank you for having me it was super fun
1: it's an honor we really learned a lot so yeah
2: (laughs) all
0: right see you in the stacks read on
2: Bye. bye the library is closed